morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Then I'd like you to bow with me in prayer, please. Father, we are sorry for the thing that we've made it. In so many different ways, Father, we've often made it about us and not about you. Please bring us back to a heart of worship where it is all about you and nothing but you. We are so grateful that you have heard our prayers, that you've come to be with us this morning. We welcome your presence here. Thank you for coming to be with us in a special way during the supper. God, we don't understand that mystery, but we believe it's more than just something symbolic. We trust your word is right, that we are sharing in you, that you come to be with us in the cup and in the blood, in the cup and in the bread. God, I, I just love this family, and we realize that we're not all of the family. We want to lift up to you this morning, United Methodist Church, and the disciples, the brothers and sisters there who also are trying to get back to a heart of worship and trying with their lives to make it all about you. Father, together, would you please help us answer your son's prayer, that you would help us be one. We cannot do that on our own. Forgive us for the times when we have actually driven wedges and made that more impossible than possible. Please come be with us now in this word through the power of your spirit. Take this sack lunch of a message. Touch it. Transform it. Be in it, God. So that when we leave here, just like you blessed that seashore so many years ago, please help us leave here refreshed, filled, looking more like your son than when we walked in. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. The sun had yet to peak over the horizon as the disciples of Jesus assembled themselves in the quiet of the morning. Although there was much work to be done on the first day of the new week, Christians from all over the area would first indulge themselves in the worship of their God and of their Savior. And they'd do it together. This week they weren't meeting in the potter's house. They were forced into the secrecy of the catacombs. The local pontiff was being reviewed by the higher-ups from Rome, and so for the next few weeks they had to lay low. You see, it was Roman policy that any worship in public other than Caesar was strictly prohibited and would suffer imprisonment. But except for the two weeks when the Roman brass was giving him the once-over, the pontiff didn't bother the Christians much. Meeting in the tunnels of the cemetery really wasn't all that bad. No one threatened them there, and the singing was great. It was a bit eerie, though, as you might expect any cemetery to be, especially the first few times. But you kind of got used to it. The silence of the assembly was broken as one of the elders, by torchlight, began reading from the Psalms. May the Lord answer you in your day of trouble. May the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you comfort from Zion. And regard you with favor and your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, set up our banners together. May the Lord fulfill all your prayers. After the scripture reading, the elders encouraged the church that God would see them through this present distress, that he would give them boldness, and if they happened to be arrested and interrogated for their faith. He reassured 
dads and moms alike, so that their families would be cared for in their absence, especially if they had to be imprisoned. Then the elders spoke of the great day that was coming soon, when the threat of death and imprisonment would be gone, when the damp catacombs would no longer be their place of worship, but instead they would gather around the throne of the Almighty and praise Him in the heavens. When the elder had finished with his words of encouragement, a slave led the group in prayer. He asked the congregation to join him in praying silently that God would grant them boldness in their witnessing for Jesus in the city. And together with the others, they raised their hands and they prayed silently. And after a few moments, the silence was broken as the brother led them in a collective prayer. At its conclusion, the tunnels rang out in unison as the church together said the Amen. Then each Christian turned and extended to the other the kiss of peace. During this time of greeting, each family had one of its members bring forward a small portion of bread and wine, which was collected by the deacons and arranged in order that it might be served to all the Christians that had gathered that day. The air was filled with anticipation because the moment of the supper had come. A hymn began to be sung softly at first as it spoke of the Lord's suffering and the shame of the cross. Ah, but the resurrection was spoken of and the tempo quickened slightly and the volume raised slightly as together the church praised God for His mighty act of love in giving His Son. One of the elders then came and spoke briefly of the Lord as Jesus shared a similar meal with His disciples on the night He was betrayed. And then along with the congregation, hands again were lifted in prayer as they thanked God for their salvation through Jesus Christ. And that prayer concluded with the congregation again saying, The Amen in unison. The communion meal was served to those present who were Christians. And with the serving of the last, the service was completed. For this was the pinnacle of their worship time together. Outside the sun had begun to peek over the horizon. Travel was much easier now when they, than when they had come, each headed to his or her own home or place of business, each with the desire to linger a moment longer, but going with the hope that next Lord's Day, the assembly would be larger with newly won brothers and sisters in Christ. Interesting. What I've just shared with you is based on Justin Martyr's eyewitness account of what a Christian worship service looked like. Justin wrote this in the year 150 A.D. And he wrote it to a non-believer because his purpose was trying to clear up some misconceptions that this friend had about these love feasts these Christians had. Now what amazed me in coming upon this particular description this week is that it is more detailed than any that we find the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the information our New Testament gives us about what a specific worship service is to look like is sketchy at best. Now, I challenge you. Look through the four Gospels this week. No reference is directly made to what an assembly of the Lord's people is going to look like. In the book of Acts, even, a book which documents much of what we know about the early years of the church, there is not a reference to the church worshiping on the Lord's Day until Acts 20 and verse 7. And here Luke only mentions two common elements to our worship that we've just experienced this morning. The Lord's Supper and preaching. No mentioning of prayer. 
no reading of the scripture, no singing, no collection. Some of you say amen. (laughs) Now when we come to 1 Corinthians, what we find is an in-depth discussion of Christian worship, the most in-depth of the New Testament, but I'm telling you it's still sketchy at best because what Paul is dealing with is not some kind of systematic thesis of what a worship service should look like. He's just handling abuses. Nevertheless, what he says is so incredibly helpful. Remember, these are letters. Paul's writing back to churches he helped plant, churches his heart and soul are with. And so he hates that there are abuses going on in this time when they should be giving their hearts, focusing on the Lord. No, it's all about them. Just as we've sang, we've done it. It's been going on since the first time the church ever met for worship, and it's a constant need we have to do is to get our heart back on what God wants us to be and do. In chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, in chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, Paul goes into great depth in speaking about the Lord's Supper, its meaning, as well as how it's to be carried out. In chapter 14, he speaks a little bit One verse, verse 14, about prayer. He speaks one verse about singing. Both places he says, now, you need to pray with your mind and pray with the Spirit. You need to sing with your mind and with the Spirit. But that's all he says. The largest how-to section of this entire letter given to worship has to deal with the speaking of tongues and prophecy and how they're to operate in a worship assembly. Now, for the sake of time today, there's no way we have time to look at that thing But the point that he makes in speaking to that is huge. For their worship to be beneficial to the body that had gathered on that day, it had to be intelligible, it had to be understandable, and it had to be spirit-inspired. Same thing as he would hope for us. Now, you think that would go without saying. (laughs) Not in Corinth. It was an absolute madhouse is how Paul tends to describe what's going on here. You had men speaking in tongues over the top of other men trying to prophesy. Some men speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation so that the church could benefit from it. You've got women who are praying in such a fashion as to embarrass their husbands. It was a madhouse. So Paul says in 14 and verse 23, the chaos has to stop. Non-believers are going to come in and think you have flipped out. And they're going to leave your assembly more bewildered than they are blessed. So, treat each other with decency. And let's have a little order here. Now, what Paul talks about is helpful. But nowhere does he mention what preaching is to consist of on a week-to-week basis. There's no mentioning of the reading of Scripture. There's no collection, again, that's mentioned for the needs of the local church. Now, in 16... He does talk about a very special contribution the church is setting aside on a week-to-week basis, but it's a special needs thing, like we would send money to a missionary somewhere. This particular mission is the famine that's broken out in Jerusalem. He says, set aside some money regularly for that, but nothing is said about the local needs of the local church. Now, from right here, All the way through the book of Revelation, the details of public worship are not mentioned specifically except maybe for a little instruction that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Now, this may not even pertain to public worship, but he does say to Timothy, now, you're the preacher. Make sure that the public reading of Scripture takes place in preaching and teaching. But then he speaks to the men saying that men in every place 
ought to lift up holy hands in prayer. To the women, he directs his remarks towards their dress. That modesty is to be a priority. And their focus when it comes to what they wear needs to be on inner beauty, not on outer extravagance. But he says nothing here about singing. He says nothing again about contributing to the local work or even this time about the Lord's Supper. And I'm telling you, church, that's strange to me. Strange. Because being raised in churches of Christ, one of the hallmarks of our identity that we often taught was that there was a clear pattern for worship revealed in Matthew through Revelation. Now, I can tell you that because I was brought up in the churches of Christ. Since I was 11 years old, I came to faith in churches of Christ. I owe everything that I am to those men and women who loved on me and formed and shaped and molded my heart, my mind, my service. Everything about me as a Christian. I worked hard from the time that I was 11 years old to probably about the time that I was 30 to defend that pattern to debate that pattern, to understand that pattern. But for the last 20 years, my study has led me to believe clearly that pattern's not there. It's just not there. Not as clearly identifiable as we seem to make it. And certainly not reproducible on a consistent basis anywhere just about in the globe. Now, the family of faith that I love pointed me to some fantastic truths that I am still carrying and still waving the banner for and still trumpeting through Scripture. But that's one of them that I don't see in Scripture because it's not there. The fusses, more than anything else, not just outside of our family, but the fusses on the inside seem to convince me even more than looking for a verse. One cup or many? Who can serve it? Men or women? How we sing, with hymnals without, with worship teams without, solos or not, instruments or not. If there's one thing I think that's clear about pattern theology in the New Testament is that it's not clear at all. I ran across this article just this week in 1971. An ad for the non-handshaking church was published in a New York City paper. A young man responded to it going to visit the minister of that church to ask, what exactly is a non-handshaking church? This was the minister's reply. Our goal is to restore the church of the New Testament. And the New Testament explicitly commands on five separate occasions how we are to greet one another. And it says that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. And by the fact that we are to greet each other with a holy kiss, this eliminates any other greeting as appropriate. And the guy visiting said, you're kidding, right? That's a little narrow-minded, don't you think? To which the minister responded, yes, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. <laughs> well, the visitor said, surely you don't mean that it would be wrong for me to shake hands at church, to which the minister responded, absolutely. It is kind of like when Noah built the ark and said that he would build it out of gopher wood, or he should build it out of gopher wood. Therefore, that precludes any other wood being used. And that is the way that is in our greeting of one another, he said. The issue, the minister continued, is not whether we understand his commands, it's that we obey them. The visitor said, you're serious about this? 
And the minister said, yes, I am, but I do need to say this. We do allow the shaking of hands in the privacy of our own homes and at weddings and funerals. We just don't allow it in worship. You see, church history bears out our practice. The early church fathers continued the apostolic example of the holy kiss as Justin Martyr teaches in Apologia, chapter 1, verse 65. Historical evidence shows that handshaking was replaced, that handshaking replaced the holy kiss about 800 A.D. We just simply believe in restoring the first century church for modern man. Now, I have no idea whether that's a true story or a parable. But upon hearing it, two reactions make me want to have a cup of coffee with you this next week. Number one, if you're worried that a handshake or a hug will send you to hell in this place. And number two, if you think, wow, isn't that off base? And you do not think that we in our tradition have been just as off base in some of our conclusion, particularly in regards to our times of worship and what's allowed and what's not. Well-intentioned, well-meaning, doing our best to find out what the Scripture wants, but off base. Church, if the Lord's intent was to reveal a clear pattern for worship and what it would look like the world over, I find it odd that what Jesus did for prayer in giving us at least a model prayer, no New Testament writer ever gives for a combined worship experience. Isn't that odd? If what we do in this room could possibly put someone in danger of their soul, which I taught and defended until I was about 30 years old, I think the question has to be asked. With the scant instruction we have been given, Was it ever God's intention that the New Testament give us a specific pattern or a blueprint or a constitution as to what constitutes worship in a church? Or is it simply to give us a few guiding principles to enhance what worshipers of God already knew? For this ragamuffin student of the Scripture, I can tell you where I'm leaning. It's in the guiding principle area, not the pattern area. Because Scripture makes it clear (laughs) when God wants to do pattern, he's really good at it. Have you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy lately? If you want to talk about pattern, if you want to talk about blueprint and constitution, God makes it clear when that's his desire to govern a covenant of his people, IRS cannot hold a candle to him. When it comes to writing a thorough law, no lawyer in the country could write a law. Like God can write a law. When God does pattern theology, he is exacting, not just for worship, but also for everything else. For how to deal with a boil on your arm, to what animal was appropriate for each specific sacrifice, to what food can be eaten, on what days it can be eaten, and excuse me ladies, but even down to your menstrual cycle. It's in the Bible. It's in the pattern. When God's doing pattern, everything is spoken to. And if you're here this morning and you're just getting your feet wet about this God thing and what it means to follow Him, if you ever thought swing set instructions were minute, get you a Bible and read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. 
It's nuts. If you ever thought your fine print on your insurance policy was meticulous, read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And when God does pattern, I'm telling you, He's good at it. He's good. And it had to be detailed. Here's why. When your blessing from God is determined by how you observe His laws, you want Him to be clear about those laws and you want to be able to do them. If the Creator of the universe is going to determine how well your friendships go and your crops and your flocks and your stocks and your wars, everything about your life, if that is based on how you perform to His law, you need to know what they are and you probably need to do them. Make no mistake about it, that is the first covenant. Remember the reading that was read a few moments ago by Aaron? That was the first covenant. It was a performance-based law. Now, to get the full effect of that, it's Deuteronomy chapter 28. We don't have time to read that, that chapter. Let me give you the Reader's Digest version. Here it is, chapter 11, verse 26. After giving all these meticulous, exact laws for worship and cleanliness and food and how to conduct business, God says, see today, I am letting you choose a blessing or a curse, your choice. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. But you will be cursed if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God. So, do not disobey the commands. I'm giving you today. Do not worship other gods that you do not know. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you will take as your own. Wow. Now, was God just flexing his muscles saying, I'm God and you're not and I can make some laws and you've got to obey them? I don't think so. He's a loving, merciful, slow to anger, kind God. God gives us these laws, he says, specifically for two reasons. Number one was for preparation. Say preparation. preparation. Just need to make sure you're still awake with me here. One more time. Preparation. preparation. Okay. He gave these laws to a group of slaves, millions of them, coming out of Egyptian bondage. They've hardly made any decisions for themselves their entire lives, not just their lives, but hundreds of entire lives. And so he wants to do his lovingly best to prepare them for all kinds of decisions they're about to make out on their own in a new place they've never been. The next is for education. Say education. education. One more time. Education. Preparation for life in the promised land and education to the limits of what law under rules can do to make a person better. And make no mistake about it. He was doing both. Something new was coming. And he wanted to educate them that they wanted to let go of something that wasn't working to embrace something that he promised would. And that was to let go of law and to embrace life in the Spirit. Listen to the word in Romans chapter 8. So now, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit's falling upon the church. So now, Paul writes, those who are in Christ Jesus are not judged guilty. Though Christ, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that brings life made you free from the law that brings sin and death. The law was without power because the law made weak by our sinful selves. But God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son to earth with the same human life 
that others use for sin. By sending his son to be an offering for sin, God used a human life to destroy sin. Church, where did that take place? At the cross, you're right. He did this so that we could be the kind of people the law correctly wants us to be. But now we do not live following our sinful selves, but we live following the what? Spirit. Because the old law was about performance to rules and regulation. The new law was about obedience to a person and life in the Spirit. Wow. He's doing something brand new. At just the right time, Paul says, Jesus ushered in this new way. Look at what he says in Galatians 3 and verse 23. Before this faith came, we were all held prisoners by the law. We had no freedom until God showed us the way of faith that was coming. In other words, the law was our, I love this word, guardian, teacher, leader. Remember when I said it was education? In other words, the law was our educator leading us to Christ so that we could be made right with God through faith. Now the way of faith has come, we no longer live under that educator, that guardian. Now, we live under a Savior. You were all baptized into Christ, and so you were clothed with Christ. This means that you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not based on your performance anymore. God comes to us and He says to every one of us, you've got to choose. You've got to choose. Are you going to believe in my Son, or are you going to believe in self? Not really much different from the choice in the very beginning of the garden, was it? He sets before them the trees that they can eat from the one that they can't. Now you get to choose. Are you going to choose me? Are you going to choose self? But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would choose to believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send that son to the world to condemn it, but to save it, to embrace it, and to bring it home. That is the good news of the gospel. And Jeremiah prophesied that it was going to happen. We just read it in Hebrews a while ago. But Jeremiah had prophesied hundreds of years before, the new deal's coming. (laughs) This one's not working. I know you probably get an idea of that. But the new deal's coming. And he outlines exactly what was read in Hebrews chapter 8 a few moments ago. That God is going to place on our hearts a relationship with him. It's not going to be based on our performance. God decides that through faith in Jesus Christ... He delights in me. Now, Jimmy, what does that have to do with worship? (laughs) Everything. Everything. Because it is so much more about the who than the how. And haven't we most gotten upset? Maybe just in this family here, don't look outside the walls, in this family with what the how is instead of the who? That's why at the very beginning of this series of lessons, we have been redirecting our hearts and our focus on the who. We're just now getting to the how. And we talked last week about how it even begins. You start the how with this celebrative reverence. Do you remember the dancing king and the priest in the dirt and the dismissed wife? That little us a moment points us back to an attitude of how we come to this time of worship. It's with celebrative reverence. But what takes place here, Jim? What do we get to do? What do we not get to do? God gives us more principles than he does a pattern. 
Now, why is that important? (laughs) Because hopefully, with all of my heart, we'll relax a little bit about the how. And we'll cut some people some slack who maybe do the how differently than we do. Especially those that we have written off years ago is maybe not even being in the family of God anymore because their house is different from ours. And also that we'll reach out to them. The next time you're invited to go to a different faith family and participate in maybe what they're doing as far as worship, maybe, just maybe, when you realize that it's not a pattern that we have to conform to, but we've been given some principles that guide us that really the who makes a whole lot more difference than the how. And you'll relax and you'll be able to worship with them. Jesus, 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 Jesus. If you're looking for a pattern in Matthew through Revelation, there's your pattern. It's not a thing or a blueprint or a constitution, a how, it's a who. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen to the word of God. 1 John 2 and verse 6 says, Anyone who says that they're in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 4 and verse 17 says, Because he is, so are we to be in this world. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, Peter says, For this you have been called, Christ leaving you an example, a pattern that you should follow in his steps. Romans 8 and verse 29 says, The destiny of all believers, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Not somehow, but a who. Eight months ago, this eldership asked me to join you in that destiny, in our being formed into the image of Christ. And they said, if you preach a pattern, preach Him. That's the pattern that we're calling you to preach, not the how. And somebody says, well, Jimmy, I still believe that there's a pattern revealed for us to follow in worship. And my response is, please tell me where. Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 4.10, chapters 11, 14, 16. Maybe you're talking about 1 Timothy 2 or 4, or maybe something in Revelation. No, we stay out of Revelation. Because there's them elders in there with a harp in their hands, we stay out of that. And I think if my soul's in danger for misunderstanding and applying what's allowable in the how, then certainly God owes me Leviticus. He owes me. He owes me Deuteronomy. If Matthew through Revelation is really the new law book. But it's not. It's the completion of the old law book. Jesus himself said that. I haven't come to destroy any jot or tittle of anything in the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And if anybody, so much as one person, decreases that, they will be seen as least in the kingdom of heaven. He was the completer. He didn't initiate some new set of rules. As a matter of fact, did you notice? He kind of narrowed them down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love who? Neighbor as myself. I love a God who makes things simple. And he tried to educate a people to say, you don't want complex. And so anybody here, listen to me clearly. If anyone's calling you to a religion that's complex, run. It's not the new covenant religion. It's not. Now trust me. Loving God and loving neighbor may not be complex, but it's hard. It's hard. Because I like being God. I like it being all about me. And occasionally about you when it benefits me. 
Doesn't God know? If he leaves it up to me and my brothers and sisters to play worship detective, looking for worship clues, that we will fuss and split and call each other names like progressive and legalist and liberal and conservative and high church and low church. Doesn't he know that some of us will go our one way with our one cups and others will go another with their guitars and pianos and others will go another way using their contribution to help children's homes and others say, no, that's got to come out of our pocket and ad nauseum and ad nauseum and ad nauseum. And I have to believe it is ad nauseum to him. That we can't get along. And focus on the who. No, we got to keep fussing about the how. The answer, friend, is believing that we really do have a new kind of covenant. That's why so much time this morning on this. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Hear the word of the Lord. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life because performance-based blessing under the law was so killing Colossians 2 14 says he nailed it to a cross church I don't want to go back to a religion like my religion like my Jewish ancestors I don't I lived under that in Christ for a while I'm not going back I'm not but part of why I could come here and be your preachers because your elders are saying we're not either we're not they believe Galatians 5 and verse 1 where Paul says, don't do it. For freedom Christ has set us free. You stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not. Can I tell you what I think that looks like? I think I can do it in about six minutes. Are you with me? Because I really do believe that there are some guiding principles about the how. Galatians 5 and verse 13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Just don't use your freedom as an opportunity for selfishness. This freedom that God has given us in this new covenant is a freedom to be able to explore how I express my outward adoration. But I can't do that when it gets selfish. He offers us freedom, but it is a responsible freedom. Number two, it is a focused freedom. We looked a little bit at this at John 4 and verse 23, so I'm not going to spend much time here. God says, I'm seeking worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. It has to be focused freedom, not just freedom for freedom's sake, but focused freedom. It has to be responsible freedom. And number three, it has to be freedom that facilitates maximum amount of encouragement. I love Hebrews chapter 10. It was that passage of scripture you see all the time when someone wouldn't show up for worship near enough. Now you know. It says don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's in the Bible. You gotta. There's not a lot of you gotta's there. But he is saying this, that when you come together, it ought to be the thing that encourages you to love and good works. And so, yes, there's freedom here in this new covenant. As far as expressing the, the how I want to worship God. There's freedom here. And yet, it's a responsible freedom. And it's a freedom that's supposed to facilitate encouragement of the brothers. But it's also this. It's a freedom where God has forbidden, we can't go. It's a freedom that does have its limits. But listen to me clearly. It's where God has forbidden and he has forbidden some things, even in Matthew to Revelation. 
Speaking in tongues will not be allowed in this assembly unless the Bible says there's someone who can interpret. And I would strongly suggest that you both talk to the shepherds before you do that. But that's what the Bible says. Isn't that right? Dustin, you are not to lead singing while art is reading scripture. It's chaotic. It doesn't help anybody. Now, there will be no dancing in the assembly unless you're dancing with the preacher. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. Only because I danced last week. And I want to thank those of you who encouraged me that I need more dance lessons. We will not offer sacrifices here for anything. Because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. God has forbidden that there are some things that will not be tolerated in this new covenant worship. And where he has not forbidden them. Where he has not forbidden them. And it focuses us on him. And it enables us to have maximum encouragement. And it's responsible. Listen to me. There's freedom. There's freedom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Hear again the word of the Lord. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. Not fear. Not fear. This eldership handed me a baton when I was publicly commissioned to take the leadership role in preaching from this place. And it was handed to me by a man who diligently has done so for the last 16 plus years. And the first two messages that I heard him speak indirectly and directly, he alluded to the fact that this is a church that does not practice pattern theology, but person theology. And I knew I was home. I knew I was home. Well-meaning, hard-searching brothers and sisters in Christ, like myself, once believed that that was there and that it would bring unity to the body of Christ. It didn't even bring unity to us. I think it's time to say that was a swing and a miss. Like some of the things we all attempt and say, you know, that didn't work like we thought it would. It wasn't what we thought it said. And so we want to move on and see if we can do better. That's what this eldership wants to do. God help us. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, we come to you humbled because we realize how wrong we've gotten and how, how our perspective can be askewed. How things that we thought are in process of being challenged And I pray this is a safe place for that to happen. That with our eyes fixed on your son Jesus and with a desire to be like him. And that being the core of who we are and what defines us in who we are. That some of the other things, Father, just begin to fade. And how it upsets us and makes us angry when someone believes differently from us. Father, we believe your word. It says that surely there will be divisions among you to prove who's true. So, God, you handle that. We have no idea who is true. Because we tend to think we're the ones that are true and the others are not. So we come to you this morning asking you, please, God, bring us back to a heart of worship. With freedom in our hearts. 
Responsible freedom, yes. Focused freedom, yes. And where you've forbidden, we will not go. But outside of that, God, help us to be a body of people who truly do major in public displays of affection when it comes to you. Let us be known as a church where worship takes place. Where the weightiness of your glory rearranges everything in our lives. And these times are are an impetus of that every single time. That it's a place where, as Aaron said, you could walk in here and you're, you're just discouraged and you're a little frustrated. And all of a sudden, family and the worship of Almighty God changes our hearts. Father, we long for the day when truly a non-believer walks in and says, Surely God is among you. Don't let us settle for anything less than that, God. In this journey to become the type of worshipers you're seeking. And we ask it through Jesus and all of our church said, Amen. Let's sing this song. It's becoming our theme song for this series. Here I am to worship. And this morning, if you're struggling with worship because you know you've been worshiping other things, you'd like to rededicate your life, do that now. We're going to have folks up at the front and the back. And if you, like Heath, are ready today to say, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, come find me down front. We would love to celebrate with you and the angels one more time. Let's stand. Let's sing, church.